Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Welcome to this month's mailbag episode, where we answer your questions. Our first question today is this. We have an adopted daughter who is six. She only has challenging behaviors at home, and we don't get any negative feedback from teachers, the bus driver, or other parents. She is well-behaved at school. So it's hard to understand sometimes that these big behaviors come from complex developmental trauma and not willful disobedience. Do the behaviors only happening at home stem from an attachment issue? Is this common to only have behaviors at home and not out in the world? And are other parents experiencing this too? Well, first of all, we can guarantee other parents are experiencing this. Melissa, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I, this is actually a super common question, which is why, one of the reasons why we thought this would be a great one to address on the podcast, because we do think there are a lot of folks out there probably listening going, yes, that's my kid. Now tell me all of the things. That's the first thing. You're not alone. The second thing is, is I think there are a lot of factors at play Um, And so we'll talk about the ones that come to mind, but just know that it is really tricky to tease all of this out sometimes. And so I always joke that like, if I ever write my memoir, it's going to be called check your logic at the door. You know, like, you know, we apply so much traditional logic sometimes to these situations and we just can't figure out like, you know, this just doesn't make sense. But so I'll start talking from a polyvagal brain science perspective. And then Lisa, maybe you can talk a little bit about the attachment part, because I think there's both things that could be happening. You know, often we'll think, well, good behavior in other places is a positive. Like at least there are places where our child can behave, which is definitely one way to look at it. Um, Because if uh, like we're currently working with a family right now, whose son has been kicked out of double digit amount of schools, like he struggles everywhere. And so that's its own different kind of challenging. But from a polyvagal perspective, there's three different physiological states that our nervous system can be in. One is what we call the top of the polyvagal ladder. And it's like safe, engaged. Think about your nervous system being really open, kind of vulnerable, willing to connect. And then there's an activated state where you're actively feeling fearful for some reason, logical or not. And so you actively either fight or try to flee the situation. And so sometimes that looks like getting really argumentative or, you know, running out of the classroom or, you know, some of those behaviors. But then there's also the very bottom of the polyvagal ladder, which is a collapse in your dorsal vagal part of your nervous system. We're also hearing this called, um, like when we hear fight, flight, freeze, and then there's another one called fawn now. And this is kind of like what I call flying under the radar. I think in our kids looks like hyper obedience. Like they know how to kind of follow along at school to be under the radar and it's kind of a survival mechanism. And so sometimes, and this probably doesn't feel like great news, our kids are safe enough around us to act out, to show uh, what they're really feeling on the inside, but they might be too afraid to let those feelings out at school, which, you know, doesn't sound like we have the better end of the deal, but it could be um, a felt safety issue. Yeah, this question, my first thought is, well, thank goodness there's some place where she is doing well, where she's functioning well, 
she can make it through a school day, which is really, really a gift. But we do know that for many of our children, home and family is the scariest, hardest thing. You know, it's one thing to have a teacher who you want to have like you. It's another thing altogether to have parents when your experience of parents is that they either aren't safe or they leave, you know. And so it can be a very frightening thing for a child to trust a parent. And so I think sometimes when you ask if it's an attachment issue, well, you know, there, I think there is some relevance to that because we are always trying to build secure attachment with our kids, but it puts a lot of expectation on them. It's hard, hard work for them. I remember our therapist telling me, Lisa, the hardest thing Calcodon does every single day is be in a family. You know, she felt comfortable in a group environment like school where the expectation was that she would you know, do what the other children were doing, but home and having a mother and having someone meeting her needs was much more difficult for her. And because attachment is so difficult, it's not about you. Like she doesn't like her teacher more than she likes you. It's more that the role of the mother or the father is the hardest to receive and to trust. And so she's more reactive with you than she is with less personal relationships. I think all you can do is just put things in place to support her behaviors at home and try to help her stay regulated and connected to the best of your ability. But I know as a mom and as a parent, this can be really discouraging. And after a while, it really does get difficult to remain sort of open-hearted and sensitive to our kids when we feel like we get the worst behavior every single day. So uh, I would encourage you, if you have never done our Compassion Challenge, it is a free challenge. You can find it on our website at theadoptionconnection.com slash compassion. And it will take you through some simple steps to begin renewing compassion for your child. You know, we talk a lot about blocked care. You'll get an introduction to that as well. So anybody listening who's feeling discouraged and like, gosh, you're just running out of all those good feelings towards your kids, I would definitely encourage you to check that out. Okay, our second question comes from Michael. He says, when will our 14-year-old adopted daughter who came to us at the age of nine begin to show some indication that she feels safe with my husband and I as her dads? It's been a little over four years and we know it takes time. We're just wondering what thoughts you might have about this. Wow, this is a hard question to answer because the answer is probably not easy to swallow, which is sometimes it can take a lifetime to build up felt safety after so many years. I know that I even struggle with issues around felt safety and I was adopted as an infant. Like these changes to our nervous system are super impactful. All that being said, there's also a ton of hope and a lot of resilience in the nervous system. So I would say have some grace for yourself and your daughter, but also be realistic that, you know, even if we think about this from a like really plain math numbers perspective. Um, she's still only been with you. Like the amount of time she's been with you is still only half the time roughly that she wasn't with you. And not that there's anything magic about crossing that what we call like equilibrium point, but I think it helps put it in perspective. You know, the nervous system starts to build a confirmation bias in itself based on its past experiences. And so there are nine 
potentially nine years of experiences that your daughter's had where maybe adults haven't been safe or they've let her down or it's been hard to connect or, you know, or, or, or. And so the nervous system is going to take a while to switch that confirmation bias that, you know, adults that are supposed to keep her safe really will keep her safe. So I know uh, five years feels like a long time and it, and you probably feel like it feels like she's been here forever. Like, I don't know why she doesn't act like it, but it, it is a long process for the nervous system to change confirmation bias. And so we would just encourage you to keep at it because it, it doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't working. Sometimes I talk about those like at splash pads, you know, where there's like one giant big red bucket at the top and there's like this dribble of water into it. And at some point it gets heavy enough to like dump all the water all over the kids underneath. And so the care and the connection that you both are pouring into her matter, but sometimes it just takes a long time for there to be enough uh, cumulative positive experiences to kind of tip that felt safety bucket in the other direction. Yeah. And I think that attachment and healing of these deep, deep wounds, I do think it's a lifelong process. I don't think that our kids are just going to, if we do everything right, that all of a sudden, miraculously, they're going to feel safe. They're going to be secure. I think it's a very long journey. And a lot of us get to the point where our kids are like, your daughter's 14, you know, these teen years. And we think, oh my goodness, we only have a few more years and we get a little panicky and we think if we don't accomplish this, if, if we don't have this deep connection and she doesn't trust us and feel completely safe by the time she graduates from high school, it is never going to happen. And Melissa and I can both attest to the fact that you will continue building relationship with your daughter throughout her lifetime, but especially like all those years in young adulthood, late teens, young adulthood, you will have many, many opportunities to be her secure base that she can trust, her safe haven that she can go to. I know with one of my adopted kids who's a young adult, it's been very, very hard to trust that anybody's ever going to take care of her and really consistently be there for her. But she's had a couple of experiences in the last couple of years where we've been able to be a safe haven for her and it has continued to build our relationship with her just little by little by little. And I think also we have to have a lot of peace that it is not our job to heal our kids. We are not the ultimate healers. I really believe that God is the ultimate healer. Our job is to facilitate that by being safe for them and let God do the work that he's going to do. The other thing I would say is it's a really tricky thing when you're trying to build healthy attachment with a teenager because she's only your relationship with her is only five years old. Like, so if we think about attachment years, right? Like we think about how young a, a relationship is if, with a small child, but then, and probably she's probably not quite 14, maybe in her social and emotional development, which is pretty common, but chronologically she's 14. And so there's other things that are starting to happen in the nervous system at 14 for neurotypical kids where they're starting to pull away and start to learn how to become more independent from their caretakers. And that's natural at 14. And so I think it is like 14 to 19 are tricky years to still be trying to build attachment 
because like a five-year-old's not really pulling away the same way that a 14-year-old is. Um, and so like Lisa said, you know, there is something else that happens developmentally where it seems that young adult children in our family, it usually happens, you know, around between 20 and 24, where they kind of realize how much they do need parents. And so rather than pulling away, they kind of tend to circle back and kind of reattach to the family after they've kind of had their chance to, you know, do life on their own. So I also would take into account that you're also entering into an age where naturally the nervous system is starting to create some separation anyway. Okay. And I have to say one last thing as well about this. There's something really beautiful about attachment. And that is that we don't have to stay in the attachment style that we had when we were young. We can continue to heal our attachment wounds. And there's something called earned secure attachment. And that is coming into secure attachment more as an adult, sometimes through a relationship with a very trusted friend or a spouse. Um, I think relationship with God can be part of it too. But I remind myself that even if I did not have the attachment relationship I had hoped for and wanted with one of my adult children in particular right now, that I hope I'm laying the groundwork for my child to become earned secure in the future and to be able to have secure attachment with her own children, because that's what really matters here for me at this point with a young adult. So I just think there's a lot of hope and, um, yeah, and in many, many years to continue building a beautiful relationship with her. Okay, our third question today is this. Why does our five-year-old daughter lash out at us? We will ask her a question calmly or talk to her and she'll just fly off the handle. She'll randomly say she doesn't like her sister or calls her mean when her sister isn't even doing anything. These random outbursts are causing us to lose patience and compassion as we are yelled at constantly. For no reason. It's just hard. Sometimes all of this is just hard. But in terms of an explanation and to answer the question, it sounds like, and of course we don't have all the information, but it sounds like she has what we call a really low frustration tolerance. And some of you are probably thinking, like, well, duh, you know. But basically what that means is because of her past experience, and I know we've said this, you know kind of ad nauseum, her nervous system is fragile. It is hypervigilant, super protective. It has learned through early experiences that the world isn't safe. And that doesn't mean you're not safe. It just means that when her nervous system was building a paradigm around what the world was like, her early experiences told her nervous system, the world might be dangerous, unpredictable. So that's the pattern that you enter into. And like we mentioned a couple minutes ago, it just takes a long time for the nervous system to change its mind about some of these things. And so sometimes it helps to think about this behavior coming from that very primitive, protective part of the brain. So if we think about an infant who has a need, they cry. And that's probably the way God made them for a reason, because we don't get offended when babies cry, because there's no mean words attached to that. 
The problem is, is as our kids get older, their nervous systems are still kind of more like infants because they're still building this foundation of attachment and felt safety, but they have these, because there's dismaturity, right? Their emotional part of their nervous system is younger than their speech and language part of their nervous system, which might be different than their social part of their nervous system, which is different than, you know, their chronological age. Your daughter has the words potentially of a five-year-old, but the emotional capacity and regulation may be closer to an infant. And so rather than just crying because of dysregulation, she's able to put words to that. Um, And the thing is, is the words aren't even, I think we did another podcast about this, about what to do about mean words. Like it's not even the words that are really what your daughter's trying to say. It's that she's so dysregulated and that's just kind of how it's coming out of her body. And so it can be helpful to think like if she were crying like an infant and she had a need, how would I respond? Lisa also mentioned the compassion challenge. These are the situations where we find that parents get frustrated for good reason, because it's hard day in and day out, but that this is kind of ripe breeding ground for blocked care. And once we, as parents find ourselves in blocked care, um, the downward spiral kind of accelerates and it. And it's really hard to keep our open-mindedness, our curiosity about behaviors, our compassion on board. So we would really encourage you to kind of think about this from two perspectives. One, how to care for your own nervous system through this uh, stage of life where your daughter has a really small window of tolerance. So take the compassion challenge. If you haven't already jump into uh, overcoming blocked care coaching group, jump into the village where we talk about blocked care at our gatherings. And from a perspective for your daughter. And this wasn't exactly part of the, the question, but I'm guessing um, you may also be wondering, like, how do we change it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is we have a program here called the Regulation Rescue. And it's really designed for the whole family because we find at this point in time, everyone's a little bit dysregulated. Um, if you've been living with a five-year-old who's always dysregulated, then everyone probably is. But we do a therapeutic listening protocol during that intensive with families called the safe and sound protocol. And we'll put links to all of this in the show notes, but that program could really help you help your daughter increase her window of tolerance so that um, you can help her move through the stage um, a little bit more quickly so that you're not kind of, you know, in this constant state of um, having to listen to her dysregulation and live through her dysregulation all the time, which we know is really hard. Yes, we do. I know I was thinking while Melissa was talking, one of the most important things we can do in situations like this is to find the things that help us stay calm and regulated because our nervous systems are communicating with each other. And so even if we keep a calm expression on our face, if internally we are very riled up and tense, our child's nervous system can sense that as well. And so taking good care for your own regulation your own calm, making sure you have the capacity uh, to to cope with her big feelings is going to be really, really important. Uh, one of the things Melissa was talking about, thinking of her as a as a newborn or a young baby, I think in situations like this, the more you can bring her close, the better. And in terms of asking her questions or making requests, bring her close, make connection with her first 
before you make the request and and see if you can help her remain in a calm state. And there are so many, many things you can help her to stay regulated. I mean, you can go all the way back to the beginning of, you know, making sure you're empowering her body's needs and, you know, connecting with her, all those sorts of things. And we don't, again, we don't know all the details, but as hard as it is, I would draw her close, be her regulating presence. You know, she's not going to regulate herself. So you're going to have to co-regulate her with you. If you have simple things like a rocking chair or physical activity, you can do with her to help her calm. I think that that always helps. So, and then in terms of her sister, I don't know how old the sister is, if the sister's younger or older, but I would just make really sure that you're um, supporting the sister. One of the things I learned early on, and this is more about um, when one child physically harms another, is to comfort the injured child first before you address the child with behaviors. So if there are things going on with the sister, just make sure the sister feels seen and, and safe. And make sure she's getting connection from you and the other daughter is not just getting correction, you know, so, so make sure everybody is feeling seen and safe in, in the family. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would say is like I already said earlier in this episode, logic doesn't really apply. And so you're probably thinking like, I don't understand why, you know, we're making reasonable requests in a calm manner and it's still, you know, the the reaction from our child does not match the input, right? Um, and so again, I would say there is something we can't always put our fingers on it because the nervous system is so complicated and so complex. But something about that request is pushing her beyond her frustration tolerance. It could be, it could be that your tone of voice or like the quality of your voice subconsciously reminds her of a birth parent or someone. Um, from her past. And she might not even be able to put words to that. It could be that there's a auditory processing disorder. And so a question, she knows that it requires an answer, but she knows it's going to take her so long to figure out what you just said that like, there's so much nervousness around saying the right thing that it just pushes her again, outside of her frustration tolerance. So um, it could be 47 different other things, but just wanted to say that there's nothing necessarily that you can do better if, because so many of the triggers are so invisible. It's just, it's just, you know, all of this felt safety is so illogical, which is so, so hard for my engineering brain, but it just, it, you're not the only one to ask this question or have this experience. It's so funny that we have spent a lot of time on this question because there really is so much to say. Like if we were sitting and having a conversation, we could ask a lot of questions dysregulated children and stress on parents. That's, that is what's happening in many, many families every day. So we just want you to know, of course, we keep saying it, you're not alone and you really, really aren't. I hope you're getting support either in real life or in a group like our village, just not growing too discouraged in the face of these challenging behaviors. All right. Our last question today is how do you pray for your children and what are some scriptures you've stood on during seasons of turmoil and uncertainty? I love this question. I like it too. It's a good one. It's a good one. You know, it's interesting. I've prayed for my kids over the years in so many ways, so many different ways. And I will say that when life was at the very, very hardest, 
quite literally, my prayers for my children were, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, because I couldn't even put it to words. You know, my things were so difficult at some stages in our parenting that my brain couldn't really form fully developed thoughts. And so there are so many different ways to pray, but I would say that one thing that's helped me a lot is to choose very simple passages of scripture and commit them to memory and pray them over and over and over. And, you know, I, some of you listening like me have a lot of children. Now, if I had hours every day to spend in prayer, I could probably, you know, like journal my prayers for every single one. And, but I, I don't, I don't do that. And so what I have found to be very, very helpful, especially when I don't even quite know what to pray is I literally just in my mind, hold my child before the Lord and think, you know, Lord, I present my child to you. Here's my child. They're all the needs. And, and I just, in my mind, just hold them in the loving presence of God and know that the Holy Spirit is working even when I don't have the words. And, you know, a lot of prayer, I, I sometimes think if I say all the right words, then if I pray it right, then God will answer it. And honestly, it's, not that at all. It's just trusting our children to the Lord. I also um, am really reminded that, and this isn't even part of this question, but it comes to mind that, again, this is this is a long journey and we can get really caught up in fear for our kids and fear doesn't lead us to good places for ourselves or for our kids. I, I often say the worst parenting I've ever done is when I've parented out of fear. Amen. So we want to, yeah, we want to parent as much as possible from a place of peace and surrender to the Lord, that he is a good father to them. Practical things I've done, because I have a lot of kids, I've sometimes, you know, prayed, prayed a general prayer for all my kids and then like divided them up. This is going to sound hilarious, but dividing them up by days of the week. So on Mondays, I do more concentrated prayer for these kids. On Tuesdays, I do more concentrated prayer for these kids. And of course, a kid in crisis then consumes all my all my prayer life. But um, another thing I've done, very small and practical, is I I got some wooden beads and put them on a piece of leather string, and each bead represented one of my kids. And it was just like a visual way to work my way through my kids. Because what tends to happen is if I start with the youngest and go up to the oldest, or the oldest and go down to the youngest. I spend a lot of time on whoever I start with and I get less and less time to pray for the kids at the other end of the line. When I use these beads, I'll literally like move one, like an abacus, you know, like after I prayed for one kid, I move their bead to the other side. And so if I get interrupted, I can set it down and I kind of know where I left off. So it's just a small thing and I don't, I'm not doing it right now, but it's something that I have done in the past in terms of recalling to mind each child and not um, forgetting and also not forgetting the ones that aren't in big crisis, right? Like those kids I need our prayers too. I will say one thing that's been a really sweet ritual and we're doing it. We haven't been a, done a great job of doing it with our uh, granddaughter who's living with us. But when we, when the kids were younger and we had more of a bedtime routine, of course, everyone's teenagers now. So there's, you know, everyone goes to bed when they want to or whatever, but we had a ritual of laying hands on them and blessing them with the same blessing every night. And again, there's, you know, rhythm, repetition, there's something really regulating about these rituals. You know, our teenagers sometimes used to roll their eyes at it and 
all these things. But as the kids are getting older or now that some of them are parents, like, I think they have these sweet memories, like, like, yeah, bless, bless Ava. Like you said, bless me, you know, like, I think there's something sweet about it too. So um, if your kids are still young enough to start a ritual like that, I think even if they kind of don't, you know, immediately love it, it builds this kind of sweetness that they can remember back on, even if they never tell you, Oh, I loved it. You know, Oh, I love it when you bless me. So we've done that. I have a routine with my teens. We started, of course, when they were much younger, but they still tolerate it. So I like that. But when they leave for school in the morning, I try to put my hands on them and pray very, very briefly because they're always in a hurry to get out the door. And then we pray the Shema together. The hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes my son will be literally running out the door to catch the bus and he'll be yelling it back to me across the lawn as he leaves for school. But I'm just thankful that that is deep within him. Um, so there are all these sweet things that we can do. I wanted to, I think you also asked about scriptures you've stood on during seasons of turmoil. Another thing we can do is we can pray scripture over our children. We can choose a simple Psalm like the 23rd Psalm and just pray it over them. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, you know, but be praying it for them. Because again, sometimes our brains are so tired. It's really hard to put words to things. And in terms of scriptures that have been helpful to me during seasons of turmoil, so very, very, very many. Um, So I recently wrote out Psalm 103, just really slowly, a few verses a day in my journal, because that's just such a beautiful psalm that encourages me. And also um, Colossians 3, starting at verse 12, about Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And it goes on. It's a whole beautiful passage from 12 to 17. That's really, really beautiful. Do you have one that you want to share? I have one I'll wrap up with. Okay. Yeah. One that I have written out multiple times over the past couple of years and have committed to memory, nice and short, is Romans 12, 12, which says, be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's a really, really good one. And I'll, I'll just close with this. First Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Mm, amen. Well, thanks for joining us for this mailbag episode. If you have a question that you would like us to answer, go to the adoptionconnection.com slash 179. At the bottom of that post, you'll see a cute little widget where you can press a button and record a question right to us. And we can play it back here and answer it for you on a future mailbag episode. So we appreciate all of you who have submitted questions. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.